Welcome to the Functional Neurologic Disorder Society podcast. I'm your host, Erica Cotton, coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, with a special thanks to Michael Romeo, our production engineer, coming to us from Australia, and our content curator, Ingrid Hertzauer from the UK. The guest of this first episode is Johannes Jungilligens. He is a clinical neuropsychologist and effective neuroscience researcher focusing on neuropsychological and effective aspects of functional neurologic disorder. He is presently a postdoc in Bochum, Germany. In this episode, we discuss his professional pathway and background to FND research and practice, as well as spending a good bit of time discussing the interoceptive model of emotions and relevance to FND, the underlying neuroanatomy of this process, and how this might relate to FND prevalence rates being higher in women and those with a history of trauma, as well as how this emotional model might inform treatment. And lastly, we have a brief discussion of hopes for future growth and directions with this work. In case you missed it, FNDS members can also listen to Dr. Jungilligens discuss the article, A New Science of Emotion, Implications for Functional Neurologic Disorder, as part of the FNDS Journal Club, which occurred on May 4th. I will caveat that we are engaging in an academic discussion of these topics, and some of these discussions may appear blunt or direct to a patient-centric audience. Also, all views and opinions discussed in this podcast represent those of the host and respective guest, not any position or policy of the Functional Neurologic Disorder Society. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Jungilligens. Today, I have Johannes Jungilligens. He is a clinical neuropsychologist and effective neuroscientist, clinician, and researcher, and we are thrilled to have him today. So without further ado, um, I'd like to turn it over to Johannes to also hear about um, his professional pathway and development and his background into getting into FND and FND research. Yeah, so uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, it, it's really a pleasure to be here. So it really, um, it wasn't the planned path for me to go into FND research or FND, the, the clinical world, but um, it, it kind of happened to me. So um Actually, back when I was still a student doing my bachelor's degree in psychology here in Bochum as a student assistant in the in the epilepsy center of the university hospital, mostly doing night shifts, uh, looking after patients with epilepsy, and most importantly, trying to detect when they had a seizure and then doing like some sort of a, some sort of a brief uh, neuropsychological testing. But then I noticed that there were some patients where I saw a seizure, but First, I thought I got the EEG wrong because I didn't see anything on EEG, but then it turns out, well, those were patients with functional seizures. And I found that very interesting and fascinating from the very, from the very beginning. And then neurolo neurologist colleagues um, explained a bit more about the background of that. And um, this really, yeah, it fascinated me. And um, then um, a few months down the road, um, when I was thinking about uh, what I could do as a master master's thesis from my master's degree, a colleague of mine, Stoyan Popkirov, um, who then became a great friend and mentor, was also preparing a study in functional seizures here in Bochum. And we just decided that uh, it would make sense to join forces. We would do the project together. And this turned out to be my master's thesis um, investigating stress reaction in functional seizure patients. And well, after that, um, I was just so uh, interested in the whole research area of FND and functional seizures specifically. Um, that I just decided that I would remain in there in that field um, and do my PhD focusing on the role of emotion in FND. And yeah, um, I'm still here. Um, <laughs> after doing my PhD, I briefly went to Boston to join uh, David Perez's um, group at Massachusetts General Hospital at the Harvard Medical School for six months um, as a visiting fellow and um, then went straight back to Bochum here to continue working on affective processes, metacognition, and the neurobiological substrate of that in patients with functional seizures and FND in general. So that's basically how I got here. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, I, it's, it's funny. I, I think a lot of individuals, especially neuropsychologists, get their first exposure to functional neurologic disorders on the EMU. Right? We're, we're there a lot for seizures, and then we incidentally get exposed to functional seizures. And that starts the whole cascade of interest and to, well, what's happening here? What's, what's happening in the brain with this? Why is it looking this way? Which is really yeah, great. Absolutely. Um, so it's it just, for me as a neuropsychologist, um, or, or we as neuropsychologists, we are trained to kind of think from both ways, right? From the brain way and from the more psychological way. 
um, and to really see that um, condensated in in one kind of um, kind of phenomenon or clinical phenomenon um, is just so interesting, and it really got me hooked. Yeah, wonderful introduction, and you've stuck with it, which is great, and done very well. Which is sort of the next piece that I'd, I'd love to hear more about is um, how you became involved in working with this more interoceptive model of emotion, modeling emotions in FND, which is is really pioneering work. I think there's there's still you know a lot to be. Well, you can speak more to it than I can. I'm sure of how how, how little we understand about emotions and effective neuroscience in general, let alone in in a condition like FND. So I'd just really love to hear how you got involved in that and the direction that it's taken and your current work as well. Yeah, so um, by the end of my PhD, where I had been working on the role of emotion in functional seizures for about three years or so, um, I was really happy about, about my work and about the whole field. But after writing my, my final dissertation um, and rereading it after a few weeks, just which you should, should never do, really, but I did. Uh, okay, <laughs> it's always embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then I realized it's, it's kind of, I was kind of frustrated that I never really got to think about what I was studying when I was looking at emotion. So it was always like a given for me. It's like, okay, we're looking at emotion and why is it important? And it is important, that's for sure. But um, what is it that we're studying there? And then it just um, came to be that during um, my fellowship with uh, David Perez in Boston, um, he thought about the same kinds of questions. And um, we decided to dig a little deeper and um, um, we both knew the theory of constructed emotion, which was put out by Lisa Feldman Barrett, um, which is one of the more up-to-date, more more recent theories on what emotions are. And when you read those papers um, that explain the theory, you and you know about FND, um, you kind of can't see the overlap. So when you read those papers and you know about those newer theories, which include interoception and affect and all these body brain mind processes. And you also know about the topics in FND research. It's really um, so clear that there is a huge overlap. And so we decided to um, bring those two areas together to really dig into the um, up to date theories on what emotions are to really deeply think about what how do we understand what emotions are and how they come to be and how this might relate to uh, the pathophysiology of FND and other complex neuropsychological and neuropsychiatric disorders. Um, so that was basically the starting point, the frustration that I thought, well, but what is emotion? We talk about it all the time. What is it? Um, so yeah, that was basically the starting point. You feel as though you can answer that question now? What is an emotion? Sometimes I feel the more we get dig into a topic, the less clear the answer becomes. But I'm curious, do you think you can answer that question now? Well, I think uh, I have a more clear-cut answer than I had before, that's for sure. Um, and I think there are um, at least ways of explaining what an emotion is or what emotions are in general um, that um, seem very or highly relevant to me and um, include up-to-date research and integrate across a lot of fields, um, including predictive processing, um, uh, including um, um, neuroscience research um, that is concerned with how the different um, uh, the different areas of the brain um, play together and the different lamination profiles and the different cortical areas within those um, within those areas of the brain, um, how they play together to yeah, regulate the body and all those brain mind body um, processes and how this ties into how, how emotions are coming to be. Yeah. So I often think about difficult abstract concepts like emotions, that at times it might be easier to think about essentially that, that we can sort of solve more relevant problems associated with a concept and sort of seek to sort of endlessly narrowly define it. So the concepts like an emotion can have more of a shared or useful meaning that allows us to use it more effectively, for example, like a concept of justice. Right. You know, it's very hard to have one definition of what justice is at every in every moment, in every circumstance. The concept of justice or the definition of it might change from situation to situation. But being able to talk about that concept in relation to other areas is what's useful and helpful. And oftentimes I think that's the way I would somewhat think about emotions as it relates to FND, you know, as different 
different uses of the the terms or definitions apply in different parts of discussions or different layers of application and, and theoretical consideration from a cellular level to a societal level of emotions and FND, which you know, are wildly different. Yeah, that that's really a great, great um, analogy there or a great example, because um, as you just said, justice is not defined per se. It's dependent on the context and um, it's dependent on the society and it's dependent on the time that that um, it is applied to or is, is talked about in. And um, it is the same with emotion, I think. Um, and it's also the fact that you can use those abstract concepts or these, these really high level concepts to then reach out to see, okay, what constitute the processes that lead to those. So you could try to anal analyze like what ingredients have there to be to for something to be just or what ingredients do they have to be for something to form an emotion. And um, this really then allows us to um, correlate that or to integrate that with our knowledge about the pathophysiology of, for example, FND. So as one example, um, we have been very not, not very long but for for certain for, for some time now um we have been um talking about the role of interoception in fnd and this has always been kind of connected to well the overall effective processing and uh, emotional regulation and and aspects like that but it has never really been integrated and one uh, one one of the i think very interesting features of um theories such as the theory of constructed emotion is that they really turn the process of understanding an emotion around. around. So for example, the theory of constructed emotion, it doesn't start from, well, let's look at what fear is or what anger is, and let's try to find the neural basis of that. And then we'll find, try to the investigate that. The narrow definition of what is this? What is the right. singular definition? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And how is it the same in, in two very different people in two very different circumstances or within the same person in two different circumstances? But really to start from the other way around, to take our understanding of how the brain works, how the body works and how the brain-body interaction works. And for example, how the brain tries to regulate the body because one of the main goals of the body is, well, to, or the, of, of the brain is to, to keep us alive, right? So obviously the brain does a lot of things, but amongst others, it That's tries to one. keep us Keeping alive. Us alive it, yeah, it's, it's a good one also. Purpose. Yeah, it's a good yeah. one. Yeah, it, it should keep doing that, obviously. And to do that, needs information about the state of the body. Because if you want to regulate something, you have to understand what's going on, just as in an orchestra where all those different instruments try to play together to form a beautiful symphony, the conductor needs to hear all of those instruments, right? So, uh, otherwise, it would just be chaos. And just in, in that very way, the brain needs to know about what happens in the body to be able to respond to when something goes wrong. And that's interoception. Basically, so it's more than just measuring your heartbeat. It's a proxy measuring your heartbeat or measuring your ability to detect your heartbeat. But it's really about feeling the state of the body. And right. that information is just so important to the brain. I think and what that your it, brain thinks it means, right? Because a heartbeat, yeah. measuring an elevated heartbeat in a different scenario, there's, you know, psychotherapy metaphors where you, okay, imagine you, you know, you're, you're rowing and you're in a rowing race and, you know, let's say you win the race, like your heartbeat's still, you know, just as tired, your muscles are still just as sore. But if you won, your brain's like, oh, that was great. This is wonderful. Versus if you lost, you're you're feeling out of breath, you're feeling the, the tenseness in your muscles, the fatigue. And even though it's the same, the same physiological response, it's, you know, the, the interpretation that your brain is also assigning it in those moments, it's highly relevant and contextually relevant, and as well as, you know, potentially relevant to the, the pathophysiology of if if things go awry in, in terms of generation of symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. And um, as you just said, the brain has kind of to figure out what all of this means, because the brain is basically locked in our skulls. It doesn't have a direct link. It has those indirect sensory inputs, and it has to kind of guess, have, have a best guess what's happening and what it means um, inside the body and outside in the world, what comes into through our ears and our eyes. And well, as, as the more neuroscience savvy audience might know that there's kind of a consensus in, in neuroscience research um, across the recent years that the brain does that by predicting what's coming in, predicting the future, basically the immediate future, not down the road to weeks, but really the, the millisecond to, to second future of what's, what's happening based on what has happened before. So on, on your More life like experience. a Bayesian model. 
more absolutely so yeah, so like um, yeah. yeah so so basically trying to infer what is happening by comparing what happened priors. before priors yeah, like and, immediate priors right and um obviously what you experience in life um really shapes how those priors work and how important those priors are or how how important they are weight in in this predictive processing so if you had a very good upbringing and everything went went great um you might um interpret or predict um uh, different meanings for the very same signal coming for example from within your body compared to somebody who had a neglectful or threatening um environment when they grew up and it was highly relevant for their brain in order to keep them alive that it was able to respond to those threatening cues in a in a in a um yeah in an adequate fashion and so all of these these prior life information really lead to how we understand the world because it basically informs our, our prior knowledge um, in the form of an abstracted version of that so obviously we don't think about what how was the last time when i experienced this and that but it's really the the abstracted version of that so basically an, an abstract concept um, which entices or includes everything that uh, that we experience throughout our life that kind of fits into a certain category and um, the interesting part here is that um, the idea is that emotions basically are concepts too and you can learn an emotion concept um, in a certain way and that's dependent on biological factors it's dependent on psychological factors but also on societal on, on cultural factors so um people growing up in different cultures might have slightly different or vastly different emotion concepts it's not just all the same but it's really shaped by how your environment interacted with you at all levels and that, that as you were speaking two, two things came to mind and hopefully talk about them sequentially if not um we can edit that yeah <laughs> sure. um, but uh, one one piece was um, you. I think the con the theory of constructive emotion. I think what it really allows for is potentially answering some of that. You know, why in some circumstances, but not others, right? Where rather than identifying the definitive piece, you identify pieces that are more commonly associated with. So most associated this sort of physiological sensation, this sort of um, verbalization, this sort of gesture is more commonly associated with this particular emotional experience rather than it is always or has to be um, rather than a binary um, exclusionary all or nothing distinction it allows for more flexibility which might help explain or allows for more accurate reflection of, of human experience right and there all the situational nuances where certain pieces will more likely produce certain emotions you know someone walks up to you and stomps on your foot and most people would reliably feel pretty angry right <laughs> You know, yeah. but if if that happens on a crowded metro train where you know everyone's standing room only, and you know the train jostles to the side, and someone you know steps on your foot because they lost balance, then you might not feel as angry. Like, oh yeah, that was it's a it's a rough train ride today, right? And I think this this theory allowing for all the situational nuances might help create more flexibility and more generalizability to various conditions, especially conditions with a lot of variability. So I'm wondering if you see it as a potential benefit or any linkage between that sort of theory of constructive emotions with considering all of the different variables and working backwards as to how that might, do you think that might explain or sort of jive well with the variability and heterogeneity that we see in FND presentations? Do you, do you see a link there or is that yeah. just me? No, 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 absolutely. I do see that link. Um, and um, it, I think it is at least in part able to um, tell us something about why, for example, in functional seizures, and I'm talking about functional seizures all the time because that's just my focus, but obviously across um, the, the whole range of, of FND, um, why some symptoms um, that are present at one time um, are not present in another time, and that those um, symptoms are, for example, functional seizures often tied to an effective arousal. So like this this feeling of not being well in an agitated way and that in those instances maybe uh emotion construction goes awry but in other instances when you're calm when you're going just about your day and nothing really uh, special happens or nothing nothing that that frightens you or that that yeah that arouses um then emotion construction could just work pretty well and so um, it it would help also to 
differentiate between saying, for example, when we refer the, to the concept of alexithymia, so the, the inability to form emotions, which is kind of a slightly older concept, um, um, but it, it really overlaps with, um, with the, the, these failures in emotion construction, but that this is just not always the time. And that obviously people who suffer from alexithymia in certain situations or cannot construct an emotion in certain situations um, are not always um, not able to construct an emotion, but this really might be situational. Yeah. Yep. Very contextual. Um, my other thought um, as we were speaking about this is also, and, and you touched on this, um, the, the brain's role in keeping, keeping us alive, uh, which kind of begs the, the weight or the brain's, you know, sort of effective weight or, or that it puts on safety. So in a more ambiguous situation or in also heavily dependent potentially on your, your upbringing or your environment or what you're con continuously exposed to, how much do you think a person's temperament, upbringing versus sort of hardwired, so to speak, you know, unmodifiable factor related to threat detection plays in, in a setting of ambivalence, in a setting of, you know, a learned negative prior how much do you think the brain overweights that weights threat detection and weights sort of a a higher marking a situation or a, a piece higher in its threat level? You know, ambiguous consider threat versus um, you know a maybe something even minor is considered a greater threat. Do you think that's happening, and do you think that can be accounted for in this theory of constructed emotion? So yeah, I do clearly think that's happening, and um, I think it's very individual and highly variable between different people and their histories, um, how it plays out. And obviously, once again, then in each and every situation. But um, I do think more ambiguity basically translate to less signal and more noise. And that's really, then it's really hard to figure out what's the signal that's relevant for detecting what's going on and how should I respond to that. And um, that might actually be um, one of those situations where um, you just don't have enough cues to construct an emotion, if to say it really um, bluntly, um, but it's um, maybe one of those situations where the brain just goes back into the past, um, kind of, not literally, um, and and searches for for other um, situations where there was a lot of ambiguity and a lot of well, I don't know how to handle this, and oh, then it it might relate to a, a more bodily concept, a more hardwired fight or flight response, for example. Um, and then there might be um, more, um, well, hardwired, um, I don't want to call them primitive, but more like um, uh, evolutionary old brain systems kicking in um, that are really there to provide you with an opportunity to fight or flight and to prepare you to just survive. And that um, in, in those survival uh, moments, um, might it be an actual survival moment? Or might it be a traumatic um, a car crash or something like that, um, or a highly threatening um, situation where you're held at gunpoint or whatever, um, or whether it is just something that is as chaotic and as unpredictable as such a such a such a traumatic um, experience, might then lead to well, I don't know what to do. Um, let's default back to fight or flight. Yeah, when in doubt, when in doubt, play it safe. I yeah, think is, right. is probably yeah. a good good brain brain heuristic that it uses. I, and, and I appreciate, you know, the the carefulness or caution around using a term like primitive. Um, but I think there there are, you know, our brains have evolved. You know, they they weren't always what they are. And I think, you know, considering I took a delightful evolutionary psychology course that just like radically opened <laughs> my personal mind to uh, the potential role and relevance of these these concepts. And and I think being able to discuss them and consider them realistically today. We, we like to think that we have these super advanced brains that do super advanced things. You know, we build buildings and we think these concepts and we do all these cool things, but really a lot of the basics of them are, are still very similar. Um, and and there's, they're still in there to a large extent and play a, play a very valuable role, I think. Um, and I think untangling how present they are and, and how to best deal with them in a modern environment is probably pivotal to a lot of mental health and wellness. So I think it's pretty relevant to discuss. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, on the other hand, it is amazing how how much our brains can do, despite being like caveman brains. Um, no, they're so, but, they're wildly advanced in yeah, some ways. Yeah, it it is. But uh, on the other hand, as you just said, um, they are built to make us survive, and they are very good at that because they've been doing that for a long time. And 
um, obviously um, those mechanisms that that make you survive um, are key to the brain and are um, at the core of the, the the functions of the brain and they permeate a lot of other brain functions that we just talk about um, without being uh, always um, that clear that they have something to do with how the brain and the body interacts. Well, I think that's a great segue into discussing some of the neuroanatomy of um, this more interoceptive model. But before we do that, I would just like to briefly mention, you know, um, Johannes and I are, are discussing his model or his group's model of emotion. And, and there are other theories of emotion that we that have been historically proposed and developed. You know, Ralph Adolf has a well-established and, and long-running theory of emotion that's slightly different and has its slightly different approaches. We note that this is not the only model of emotion that exists, but this is the one that we are discussing today <laughs> and are happy to have more of an extensive discussion in, in other podcasts in the future. Um, so we, we acknowledge that and highlight that, um, but we also want to spend time talking about this model, specifically how it relates to FND. Um, so with that said, if you wouldn't mind briefly walking us through for the neuroanatomy, neuro, neuropsychology geeks among us who want to hear all the neuroanatomy of how the neural systems work or would be proposed to work for um, this interoceptive model of emotion, that would be great. Oh, yeah, I'd love to, because that's really, uh, that, that's the nitty gritty. Now and we I, get all excited. I, yeah, now the neuropsychologist gets, gets on the microphone here. So it's, um, maybe we have to briefly mention um, the idea of predictive processing once again, because it's just so key to that. And the main idea of predictive processing is, as we've just discussed a few minutes ago, that the brain tries to predict the future based on past experiences. And it does that, and then it compares those predictions to the actually incoming sensory input. So the information coming in from within your body, but also from your senses and sense organs. And it does that not just once, but at many steps of a hierarchy that is reflected in the different cortical areas of the brain. So you do have those primary cortical areas, for example, the primary visual cortex, the primary sensory cortex, where the really the, the primary information just comes in. But then um, you have secondary sensory cortices where there is an abstracted version of this information. And then you have those multimodal uh, sensory cortices where those different modalities are combined to make one picture. And it, at every step, the information that is represented is getting a little bit more abstracted, a little bit further away from the actual input, and it is compared to the um, to the prediction at every step. And if there is a match, then fine, everything's great. If there is a mismatch between what the brain has predicted will happen and what the, what actually happened, then there is something that we call an or that is called an prediction error. And this prediction error basically tracks the difference between what was expected and what really happened. And this is then used to update your next cycle of prediction. So you basically learn something. However, you don't learn everything and you don't predict everything with the same weight because some things are just not that important to integrate them. Something just happens and the brain says, well, nothing, there's nothing tied to it. I'll not invest the energy to really consolidate that. Yeah. yeah. And so um, the third um, idea after or when we talk about um, predictive processing is that those predictions and the prediction errors are weight. So there's a certain weight which is put on them by so-called salient signal. So a signal of saying, is this important or can we discard it? And these three principles are basically um, at the core of all of those predictive processing models. And the fascinating thing is that um, neuroscience um, in the recent years has started to understand how this is really happening in the brain. And um, the nitty gritty part of this you is can that see my it, hands going clap clap. clap yeah, clap, yeah, clap, 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 <laughs> yeah, oh, so yeah. Exciting. So yeah, me too. Um, so the the main idea is that there's evidence that not all cortical um, areas are the same. So there are there is a microstructure, um, a so-called lamination profile that basically reflects how many cell layers are in each of those cortical or in, in yeah how many cortical columns basically are in, in these cortical areas. And these lamination profiles, they differ based on the main task of those cortical areas. So for example, those primary sensory areas that we've just talked about, the primary visual cortex, for example, they have the most complex six-layered so-called corneal cortex um, makeup. But every time the information is passed along one step and gets a little bit more abstracted, 
the cortical microstructure underlying that changes a bit. Um, so it's getting less abstract. Uh, the information is getting more abstract, but basically the underlying new uh, microarchitecture um, is getting um, a little bit more generalistic. And so we can basically see a gradient of information flow, which is supported by a gradient in the, the cortical microstructure underlying all that. And at the very end of that gradient are those areas that we call limbic. So the limbic areas of the brain are basically areas with the most simple cortical makeup. And fascinatingly, the information, as we just talked about, that travels as a prediction error or as a as tracked by a prediction error and down from these cortical areas is met from the other end of that gradient by the predictions. So those predictions, they actually originate on the other end of this. It's called a sensory fugal axis. And that is um, basically that on the other end of this axis, um, we have those regions where we understand these predictions originate. Um, and if we then take a step back and look at how these regions are um, represented in the brain and, and in what networks they are, um, then we can talk on the level of brain networks and on those overarching brain networks, such as the default mode and the salience network. And we know that especially those two, which are highly relevant to FND pathophysiology, which we can talk about later maybe, um, is that in the areas where they overlap, these are really the, the regions where um, these predictions originate, um, but which are also regions with uh, regions which um, are responsible for sensing and regulating the body. So the primary interoceptive cortex in the insula, for example, overlaps with regions of the salience network, basically the area which say the areas which say, okay, this is something that is important, which where the, the salience signals originate. So um, this integrates then our, our uh, overarching um, brain network perspective, um, including such network networks as the default mode and the salience network, um, with you, these really microstructural um, uh, level. Would you also include um, the autobiographical memory network within within your network considerations? Yeah, so that's that's a very important but a very heavy or a very hard question for me to answer because yeah, that was um, a loaded one. Yeah, that that that's is, it is a good question though. Um, I, I do have to say that um, when we um, were um, working on that paper and integrating all the evidence we really focused on the roles of um, interception of body regulation of affective processes and predictive processing um, and um, actively acknowledged that there are other functions that are highly relevant for everyday life, but also for all of these uh, more abstract psychological constructs that we will not discuss further um, because then it just Maybe it gets too complicated only for me, but I had the feeling that um, if if we dug into this, um, we would kind of lose track um, of of the, the the idea that we would want to convey. But um, absolutely, um, we, we do know that um, that um, there are also predictive processing models within, for example, the uh, mesotemporal lobe, um, especially hippocampus, um, which is responsible for, for example, um, uh, autobiographical memory. Um, so yeah, it, it does overlap. I don't think they are the same. Um, I don't think I that it's necessary. Um, so I don't think that um, those episodic memories um, that are represented in our, our autobiographic memory um, are just the same as um, the, the regions that are responsible for concept generation, because um, as we talked about earlier, those concepts are really abstract versions. They are stored um, as as not the, the the memory itself. Yeah, I think there might be a fundamental difference between sort of a content and process, right? If the autobiographical memory network stores more of the content and those content specifics, the um, salience networks might might be more thought of as the the mechanism by which those are made and processed, right? The the actual um, digestion, development, analysis, formation, um, more of a process approach, which which can be highly variable. Yeah, and I, I think it's probably also more relevant for FND to stick to the kernel. Right. I mean, to, to stick to the kernel core process. And I think everyone would probably agree that there's a highly relevant role of our salience network when it comes to um, FND and the consideration. So, yeah, just a thought. Had to put that out there, though. Just Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I, I, I do think so. I'm not enough of a memory researcher, not at all, actually, to 
really be able to talk about this. Which um, is ironic because you're in the Brain Salience Network. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amygdala, hippocampus, they're like, you know. It is. They're just right there. Yeah, I know. But I think that's, you need to find your speciality and uh, go, go, go out from there. But I, I would be highly interested in having a better understanding in how those episodic everyday memories are getting then abstracted and becoming part of those concepts that guide guide our experiencing of the world um because at some point in my understanding um for example um, sleep is very important in that way that memories are not only stored but also sorted into those different categories um that are that they connect to but i don't understand enough of that to really talk about that educated yeah of course and um it's the other the other mode or network i think would be the cognitive control network right you know like how much does the cognitive control sort of the frontal lobes down down regulate that salience network and and the role of cognitive control in that regulation but i think you know it's a similar adjacent topic space but not necessarily at the the kernel of this really cool well what are how are these signals coming in and generated and developed um, within the brain and then how does that lead to predictive models and predictive processing within that with our remaining time, I want to be sure that we touch a bit on how this constructive theory of emotion might change based on certain factors um, and the ones relevant to FND. And I think we've we've touched briefly on some of these, but you know, FND is not present in everyone and it's not present in everyone equally. For females, how that might relate to how your interoceptive model of emotion might be different across genders or might be different across individuals who have a history of trauma who don't have a history of trauma. What what might those differences be and how might how might the model change in those circumstances? Yeah, so that's that's a highly relevant question, I think. Um, and also considering that not obviously not all patients with FND report um, traumatic experiences. A significant number does, but not everybody does. And um, on the other hand, not all traumatic experiences are in in the same category. So there might be those highly significant once, hopefully once in a lifetime, really impactful events. But then there's also that kind of a more subtle adversity that just keeps being present for a longer time, childhood neglect, emotional neglect, um, stuff like that. Or, um, for example, I think something that is um, often overlooked is um, how living in poorness, um, living uh, without uh, enough resources, at least even if it's wealthy compared to ancient times, but in relative poorness, um, how this is also a constant adverse and somewhat traumatic experiences that severely impacts how we interact with the world and, and, and how we understand what threatens us and what might not threaten us. So it's not always the, the classical um, violent trauma, but it, it might be more subtle, but nonetheless, very impactful kind of adversity. Um, so I think that's important to keep in mind on, on, on one hand. On the other hand, I think that between genders, there um, definitely numbers are very clear, um, a high numbers of patients that identify as females um, within the FND um, patient cohorts. Um, and I think that if we think about that in the connection with um, adversity and trauma, that there um, obviously is a mix between different factors, but it's just, I, I understand that we live in a world where just girls and women are more frequently expo exposed to certain kinds of harm and neglect, which might include classical uh, violent trauma like sexual abuse, but also those more subtle forms of adversity, emotional neglect, or constant pressure from the social environment, and which also can be um, a very impactful kind of adversity. So um, I think that explains a part of the story, but I don't think it, it it just explains everything. But because once again, there are patients who don't experience any kind of trauma, but still end up having FND. And amongst those are women. And I think it's a very complex, complex field that there are, that there might be differences in how uh, members of the different genders or how psychopathology is in some cases expressed differently between the, the genders, um, which is included by social factors, but also might be um, might be influenced by uh, biological factors, um, hormonal status, wiring of the brain, um, all of those different factors that impact how how uh, well our well being is expressed and impacted. Yeah, well, no, I, I think it's very relevant and important to consider you know, how how these factors like like gender, um, like trauma, 
might be relevant to FND, but I also think not just an FND issue, right? On the broader aspect of, you know, emotions and gender identity based on biological identity versus all of those different nuances. I don't think the broader fields of, of effective science of psychology have the greatest grasp or even whole comprehensive understanding of how each of these factors might influence a person, let alone within the subset of brain function that is FND. So I think these are broader questions, but just because I don't think we have the full picture and we're always working with pieces and, and incomplete information means, you know, we don't consider it and discuss it or at least acknowledge its relevance to the population that we're working with. Um, and, and there's always this sort of clinical, I, I don't know if you find this, but I, I find this sort of tension between research and clinical work, right? You know, mm-hmm. where research sort of pulls for this, you know, differentiation, clear definition, which almost creates these artificial bifurcations or these artificial delineations of this is that and that's this, you know, like gender, it's male or it's female or it's this or it's that or it's not. Um, male, female, other, male, female, you know, all these other char- characterizations where, you know, clinically we would just consider the whole person. You know, it doesn't matter what percent they identify. Maybe they identify as partly percent or not all the percent or nothing or, you know, and it's just so much easier, I think, clinically to more work with these concepts on an individual level when the person sitting in front of you and can be present with them as a, as a whole person versus and, and their whole brain and how that works for them. Versus in research, you know, a lot of times we're not looking to research one individual. We're looking to, you know, to research one concept across many individuals, which makes it so much more harder and and difficult and sort of creates this tension of, you know, putting people in boxes where boxes might not necessarily work or fit entirely, which I I find, I don't, I don't know if you find that as well, but, but I I tend to have that tension in my experience. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, At least until now, I think um, most um, of our very own research, um, but also the, the broader field um, of psychopathology research, um, has um, difficulties being complex enough to just grasp grasp the complexity of individual patients that we're trying to understand better. And, and then we're just using our tools that we have, for example, a certain scale and the scale says, okay, 10 points and more group A 10 point, uh, nine points or less group B, or, or we're using um, some kind of a checklist and um, we try to, to disentangle a very complex thing by just saying, okay, we split it in the middle and say, this is that, this is that. And um, it's the same, I think, for, for um, questions of symptom severity. It's the same for questions of what is adversity um, because everybody, nobody goes through life and everything's just fine. But at what point is it, could we consider it a, an adverse experience that really impacts the life? Or um, how would you ever define that between different people and, and different situations? So, um, yeah, th- so the, the research reality um, kind of um, lags behind um, what, what, uh, what it can do on what it can do. But um, it's, on the other hand, really hard to be able to investigate a phenomenon that you want to investigate in a whole group of people because you'll always lose some information when you're going from an individual to a group of people. Yes, exactly. You 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 lose the complexity in favor of gaining clarity over one more specific element. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Um and other pieces I, I think we had wanted to to chat about would be and this this might also slightly overlap with um some of the neuroanatomy of this of the interoceptive emotion process is you know, the treatment models, right? How how well do our treatment models for FND presently reflect, capture, or capitalize on this sort of predictive model of emotion that, that we have, you know, and, and just to recap for, for audiences less familiar, you know, for um, a lot of FND treatments, they are um, talk-based psychotherapies, kind of those um, manualized workbook interventions um, from various authors. You know, we have Kurt's great workbook manual, Kurt LaFrance's workbook manual, um, you know, John Stone's group has a, a manualized workbook and several others that help individuals become aware of their bodily processes, respond to them differently, identify emotions, regulate emotions, and then for a more movement-centric uh, conditions, um, especially functional movement disorder, then you have that usually plus an additional motor rehabilitation piece where there's um, physical, occupational, and speech-based uh, therapies that are combined with a more behavioral approach. So, and with that in mind, I'm curious if how well you think the current models consider this interoceptive process and any ways that it could be more updated or continue to help inform. You know, sometimes I feel like treatment and understanding help inform each other and, and help develop. 
um, and, and grow each of the different elements. But I'm, I'm curious from your take on what your level of satisfaction is with treatment matching models, um, or if you think we're still pretty pretty far away from that. So yeah, maybe I should um, put out a disclaimer first. So I'm not a therapist. I, I don't do psychotherapy, and I uh, my knowledge of that is um, very much um, not complete. I do have the feeling that there has been um, a tremendous development throughout the recent years, um, both concerning large scale test of, tests of um, manualized treatment trials, for example, in the CODES trial, but also in the development of those treatment approaches themselves. And um, it's really great to see that because in the end, all of our research, all of our trying to understand what's happening, what's the pathophysiology is only the, the primary goal should always be how to better help patients with FND to manage the symptoms, to um, reduce the symptoms, to get a better quality of life, to just make them feel better. And so ultimately it all leads to how do we make our treatments better. From my understanding, there is a lot happening around the ideas of how to express emotions, um, whether it's an idea or an approach where the, um, the idea is to have psychotherapy or talk therapy as a place to express emotions that were previously unexpressed, which is more related to maybe a conversion approach of a suppressed emotion or an unexpressed emotion, or whether it is something that is more related to um, this um, interoceptive approach or this predictive processing approach where it's not a place or where psychotherapy isn't the thing that makes you express an emotion that wasn't expressed before, but where you are learning to construct an emotion, where you're learning to tie your interoceptive information, the way you feel to a concept and then use this concept in the future, maybe to overcome situations where previously a, a symptom was constructed. And I'm really putting the constructed there in, in huge brackets, because um, when we're saying symptom construction, it obviously doesn't mean that a patient constructs a symptom willfully, but but that is something that is happening within this constructive um, predictive a, processing. So a, a it's not a byproduct of the former loop. So an incomplete loop right. might create an unwanted byproduct versus a completed or, or differently constructed loop might create a more wanted outcome in brain, right. brain and uh, body products. So, so maybe basically um, psychotherapy could be the place where an emotion is learned or an emotion concept is, is formed in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but as I said before, I'm not a, not a therapist. I don't do therapy. So um, maybe um, you could talk a bit more about your experiences with that, because I would be very interested in that. Yeah. Um, just disclaimer to, to those listening. Um, I, I would consider myself a psychotherapist, um, which is ironic for a neuropsychologist, Johannes, I'm sure you know that most neuropsychologists really don't, don't, don't venture into the, the psychotherapy. Yeah, but they should. So it's good that you do. <laughs> I agree. I think I think we we do bring something valuable to the table, but I've been fortunate to be to be well trained by mentors. And I, I think your theory of constructive emotion is is really maps on exquisitely well to what I experience as a psychotherapy process for a lot of patients with FND um, in a way that's different from people who don't have FND. Um, I think for a lot of individuals who don't have FND, there's sort of the emotions there, and it's just this well established. It's just in the room. It's present. It's fully formed. And there's all these defenses around it and all these patterns and habits. And it's just, it's just kind of interesting. I'm like, oh, wow, it's just all out there. And then, you know, yeah. I work with people who have FND. I'm like, okay, I've got to find this. Where is it? I almost like have to work with them to bring it together and mm. create some sort of cohesion from the, the various components of their experience. And then we use language to give that a different set of meaning or even meaning where there wasn't, right? Not a different meaning always, but just that they didn't have a language or, or a completed sense of, of the holistic process. So I do find for a lot of FND work, it's creating a healthy cognitive sca scaffold or construct to hold all these pieces of experience. And it's these pieces of their experience bodily, you know, internally, interpersonally, that they then label as something that then helps them be more effective in their daily life, right? You know, and in, in, in their world. Um, and, and that's different for everyone, you know, what, what someone might label or, or differentiate. And I think there's some limitations to language here. You know, language doesn't capture perfectly, you know, our internal experience or um, our past experience. And I, I do think there is a role for the correction, right? You know, of, 
oh, my thought about this situation was off or incorrect or distorted. And so then you correct that distortion and update that model. But I, I would say that's not the primary, in, in my experience, more the primary role with FND is more the construction, right? You're, you're taking these disparate pieces, helping them create a structure that makes sense and that's more functional and useful, more practical for them for them to use that also feels better. You can just kind of see the light bulb go off. They're like, oh, that's what this is. Oh, and that's what I can call. And then they start using that language and they start internalizing, putting those pieces together with their language, with their models, um, and then using them more constructively in their daily life in a way that's much more comfortable, you know, emotionally comfortable, cognitively comfortable, physiologically comfortable. There's just kind of less cognitive, emotional, and, and physiological tension all around in a way that I think is helpful. But ironically, and I wonder if the effective neuroscience has followed a similar pathway. I feel like there's been this evolution in psychology, you know, where very, very Freudian and more of this conversion, then it became very behavioral, you know, a one-to-one -one where, you know, just a mm. behavior is a response and a stimulus. And now it's sort of become more of this constructed, flexible. And I think even CBT to then include is very sort of cognitively thought-based, a thought's wrong or inaccurate. If you correct it, that corrects the emotional experience so that your emotional experience is more accurate or positive um, versus the more, up, you know, not I wouldn't say more updated, additional models that consider a more emotion-centric approach because you, know, you have acceptance and commitment therapy and dialectical mm. behavioral therapy, which are emotion-centric, Right emotional awareness, emotional regulation, emotional acceptance, emotional understanding and behaviors and flexibility around different emotional concepts. And so I'm appreciative that the effective, I feel like a bit like the effective neuroscience has also kind of followed that trajectory where, you know, it was initially you know, this, this, we don't know what's happening. Let's take a guess to like, okay, this is behavioral <laughs> to now, okay, now we can talk about emotions directly. I don't, I don't know if you've felt as though the effective neuroscience has kind of mirrored the, the psychotherapy pathway or, or development. Yeah. So first of all, that's so interesting. Um, everything that you just talked about, and it, it's so um, great to to basically see that um, what is happening in the basic science approaches and the pathophysiology uh, pathophysiology approaches and in all of neuropsychological conceptualizations, that it really does um, have a place in th psychotherapy and that it really relates to what happens there. Um, so that's so good to hear, and it's it's so important to know. Um, that research and and clinical practice are going hand in hand there at least um, in in some way and I do think um, uh, that you're right that um, both sides kind of educate each other um, so that both can learn from each other and that both should listen to each other um, and I, I think that's the case for the the broader field of effective neurosciences um, but also um, it, it's critical for for the field of FND research um, so we need those. Um, clinician researchers, we need psychotherapists to um, go out and, and report uh, what they learn from doing therapy with patients with FND. We have to listen to patients um, and their perspectives, um, how they experience their symptoms and their, their, uh, their illness, but also um, how they experience when they get better and how they got better. Um, and, and to really integrate that into how we um, research and, and advance research in FND. Oh, definitely couldn't couldn't agree more. And and I think for the role of effective neuroscience in some of these models, I actually think it's very beneficial for patients to have an understanding of this, right? To understand something makes it manageable, right? If if you know why something's happening, it makes it infinitely and instantly more tolerable versus we don't know why this is happening. It just is, um, especially if it's negative or unpleasant or has attention to it. And I think for effective neuroscience and just explaining to patients in very layman's terms, but I mean, this, it's possible to, to explain to people, brains do this. This is what your brain is doing. And to them go, oh, this is why my brain does that. And then not internalize or pathologize the experience of having that process happen. You know, people, why did this thought pop in my head? I'm just a bad person. I should be able to control this, this thought that popped into my head. You know, that automatic safety-based <laughs> thought that, that we can't help. Um, and I think there is a real power in knowledge and giving people peace of mind, self-acceptance, realistic expectations, you know, of what brains just can and can't do. You know, if you want to delete that thought, delete that memory, oh, sorry, I mean, maybe you know better than I, but I have yet to find a delete button in the brain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it's, it's, it can be so empowering um, to really um, have patients being expert in, in their, their disorder, even though it's obviously not their disorder, but it's just something um, that really helps um, to, to have a 
more um, eye-level conversation between researchers, clinicians, and patients. And so I do think um, this, these um, yeah, educational um, approaches and, and really uh, trying to convey what we understand how FND works to um, those patients who are suffering from FND is, is highly valuable. Um, and on the other way around, um, I, I always think it, it's really, um, as I just said before, important to listen to those people who experience something and to let this inform your research. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, even as I'm a clinician working with this, I think there's several sort of variables that there's, there's commonalities, but then there's also divergences and differences just even among people with the same disorder. Right. I, and I wonder, at least for me, clinically observing different sort of depths are the wrong word, but sort of extremes and experiences of emotions themselves. You know, some people have this torrent of emotions where they've got this huge wide emotional range and it's really deep and wide. You know, it's like this you know, very active, highly, you know, ocean-like experience in terms of its depth and how much it moves and all of these pieces. And other people, you know, no, no matter how much we could, I could spend years working with them and their emotional experience is going to be the, within this fairly, you know, more limited range that doesn't wobble a whole lot, you know, or they might have just like two puddles, you know, we've got one, one puddle that's more comfortable and one puddle that's like, you know, more uncomfortable, but that's as far as that's truly their experience. And I think they're, changing, you know, how making sure models account for that much interpersonal variability in these two experiences. And also the same thing with you know, the sort of cognitive tempo and course, some people's brains move so fast to certain conclusions and just get there so fast with such veracity, you know, that getting them to slow down in the moment and recognizing, you know, that leap was not the most helpful or, or not the most accurate. Some people, you can intervene and slow that process down and, and there's flexibility versus other individuals, it happens so fast. It's something that's so more innately hardwired. hardwired. Again, is this, I hesitate to use that word, but the experience of it and the way my, my patients describe it is like, it just is so automatic. That's a harder thing to address and might be might need to be addressed in a different way. Um, so I think things like, you know, depth and range of the personal emotional experience, the speed or strength of a certain connection or, or jump that the brain makes, um, and then the flexibility, right? You know, some people, they can just move around a concept, dance around it, you know, look at it from all angles, add things to it, yeah. it really yeah. flexibly work with it. And other people, it's like, no, this is the concept, like this is it. And there is no, or very minimal. And you could maybe get them to like, you know, pull a little bit up on that concept, just a hair. But then as soon as you're out of the session, you know, it, they're going right back to what their their concept was and, and will be. And it's sort of this, this more rigidity and I think, you know, our model, and that's how people present, you know, and, and it's very real to them and it, it it's how their brains operate and making sure that we have treatments that account for all of those different variances or, or different aspects of presentation, you know, all those different sort of sub profiles, I think of, of people in terms of how their brains work. And it's not, they're not volitionally doing this. They're just telling, they're just telling me how their brain's working. You know, and it's, it's very, they're very accurately describing it because I observe it as well, you know, and it's, it's making sure that I think we know what works for different subtypes and having our models be able to account for that variability, but it's, it's fascinating. And depending on, you know, the person, they, it's either an easy or very challenging experience to, to try and influence how a brain's working can also be a lot of suffering involved if, if their brain's not one to be influenced, right? If, it, if, they're, yeah, you, sure, you can yeah. nudge, you know, if, if their brain can't be nudged and it, it just still creates a lot of yeah. misery, which is, you know, we have to have something for them too. And it's the work yet to be done, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think um, this makes clear how important it is to, to consider that everybody just comes in with their own history, um, their, their own um, yeah, backpack of a mix of problems um, and, and some might just have a very big backpack with them and uh, some might have a lighter backpack with them. And um, that, um, as you just said, our models should be able to um, to include all of this heterogeneity. But then I think we, we should also be able to, or we should be as to, uh, we should be so honest to really say that um, the models that we have are not a one size fits all. They hopefully, um, fit a lot of the the aspects that we're interested in and that are relevant but um at least for for for, for the, the model that we presented um we would be um very clear that it's not a one size fits all and there are other models out there so for example um uh, about 10 years before we published this paper so really um leading the pathway um to to all this predictive processing thinking in fnd 
was the paper on uh, the, the Bayesian hysteria um, um, led by Mark Edwards. Um, and um, this is really complementary to, to our approach and it overlaps in parts and it might be more relevant for some patients where whereas our approach might be more relevant to other patients. And then there might be patients that um, are not well covered by any of those. And we need um, even better explanations for those. And um, I think we just should keep that in mind that all of our theories um, are just ways of trying to explain something that we see out there. And they are not perfect. They will evolve. And we will at some point um, maybe get rid of them and replace them with better models um, or, or more fine-grained um, approaches. Um, so we should never forget that. Yeah, so it's always that that tension between the individualized and the group expression, you know, the group understanding. And there's utility in having a model that fits most people, right? Because then we get to answer really cool questions and, and help a lot of individuals gain an awareness and ourselves gain an awareness. I think, you know, the field makes leaps and bounds anytime we understand the way something works for most people, right? Yeah. There's definite utility in that. Um, from a knowledge perspective, but also from a clinical perspective, which is great. Awesome. Oh, I've had so much fun in this discussion. It's just been great. Yeah, uh, me too. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, any last comments or future directions or future thoughts before before we sign off for the day? Where would you love to see the effective science field go or the FND field go as it relates to effective neuroscience? So one thing that I think is happening already um, and should happen more is that we take our research a bit out of the lab because this is just such a controlled and unrealistic environment and go out where the patients have to live with their symptoms. And um, so one approach, for example, is called uh, ecological momentary assessment. So basically assessing a certain symptom or a certain effective state or what, whatever and throughout the everyday life of a patient and then trying to integrate that with other information that we gather on in, for example, lab-based experience uh, experiments. So um, I, I think that is very valuable um, to enrich um, our understanding of what we really measure and what, how it relates to the everyday life of, of the patient with FND. And then I am always a fan of integrating research across different modalities. So to have um, a really um, biological, maybe neuroimaging, neurophysiological measure, um, but then also to include behavior, for example, through behavioral paradigms, uh, measuring, for example, proxies of whatever happens in FND, um, to include self-report, to include, to include clinical data, and to really um, integrate across all of this to not just measure something um, in isolation and try to to understand what it means. Um, so really trying to get a better understanding um, a across a range of different factors. And then obviously always trying to translate that into better helping patients um, and, and better or developing better therapy models, um, developing individualized therapies, th therapies maybe based on biomarkers, if you want to call it that way, um, from those lab-based uh, experiments. And so I think this is really something where at least uh, a part of the research field in F&D um, is, is going to uh, to be, and that's that's a good place, yeah. yeah sort of a precision F&D rehabilitation approach. There's, um, yeah, there's a model. Yeah, that would be so cool, yeah. Yeah, rehabilitation medicine, um, physical medicine and rehabilitation is um, taking that approach. They're, they're, well, they're attempting to, they're aspiring to a precision precision rehabilitation that's much more individualized and i would love if that model would would carry over to fnd which in, in a lot of ways very much takes a rehabilitation approach to these neurologic type symptoms you know which is very important oh i love that no i, I think those would be great directions and it sounds like um you've certainly got your work cut out for you for the rest of your career Oh yeah, it's it's not getting boring over here. I'm I'm sure of that. There's just so much to do, and um, I think that's one of the the great um, aspects of this research field in FND is that um, there's just so much to do, which is also depressing because there there should have been so much done already, um, and we should be so much better at understanding so many aspects. But there is still so much really um, interesting stuff to work on, and it's really fundamental stuff that also might help us. Um, understand um phenomena of of brain functions better that are not only relevant to fnd but really in the broader context um so uh, yeah i think it's 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 really a great field and i'm really um thankful for for being part of this oh that's wonderful i, I agree I'm, I'm i'm hopeful and sort of have this sort of 
secret, although it won't be secret after I say it out here, um, (laughs) this belief that, you know, if we can expand our understanding of FND and if we can sort of crack the FND issue, you know, that, that sort of understanding that mechanism, then it will really expand and help more behavioral health, right. And more cognitive and behavioral phenomenon that, you know, we previously have, have been struggling to certain, to, to treat to a certain extent. So I'm, that's my sort of secret wish or desire. Maybe that's a little, you know, egocentric, like we're the key to everything. No, I, I do share that. I do share that. It's, it's, I, I think it's valid. This has been delightful um, in talking with you. And thank you so much for being our very first guest on this podcast. And I've learned so much and I'm sure that all of our listeners have as well. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I do want to thank um, the co-authors of that paper that we've talked about so much, um, which is um, Sara Paredes Echeverri, who was the co-lead author um, as a postdoc at Mass General at the group of David Perez. Then obviously David Perez, um, who is um, the the a director of the Functional Neurological Disorders Clinic um, at Mass General uh, in Boston. Um, my colleague, uh, Stoyan Popkirov, who, um, as I introduced in the beginning, was a long time or has been a long time friend and mentor um, in this field. And then uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett, um, who landed us um, value, valuable insights in, into her theory. So um, obviously such a paper is never a, a one person effort, but this really was a group effort. And I'm really thankful for, for this team effort. And we are very thankful for you all in this Herculean effort and the continued future directions. There's just so many more things to do. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to all those other uh, other episodes on this podcast. Yeah, see you then. And that concludes this episode's podcast. And we hope you join us again next time. As promised, here is a code for 50% off the first year membership to our listeners of this episode. Code FNDS001.